All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Uh, joining me now is staff writer for the American Prospect, Alex Salmon. Uh, he wrote about Robin Hood and GameStop and all of that fun, if you consider it fun. Uh, I kind of do. Alex, welcome back to TYT. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, no problem. So there's a lot of interesting parts to the saga, uh, but I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm going to start in a funny place. So for the people that are um, trading on Wall Street bets and the subreddit that are trying to take down the hedge funds uh, that have uh, tried to bet against stocks like GameStop and AMC. For those people that are betting against the hedge funds, is this mainly a political movement? Are they trying to make money? Are they right wing or left wing or neither? Can you tell? Yeah, I think it's it's tempting to feel like this is like like a great underdog story or like a revenge tale uh, where these you know these kind of hard scrabble know nothings come out of nowhere and and vanquish these hedge funds, and I and I I don't necessarily think that's the case as much as I would you know obviously like it to be and it would it would feel so much better of as a story if it were. Um, I think that like so many things that that originate from to kind of the depths of the internet, it it refuses that interpretation a little bit. Um, I think there are some people who probably believe that who were part of this. I think there were some people who were in it to make money. I think there are some people who thought it was funny, and that's probably the depths of their commitment. Um, but it, you know, I think there also are are components of all that in it as well. So you know, it it makes a lot of sense that in our uh, in our you know wildly financialized economy that eventually this that the stock market would be a point of contention, and and uh, and you know now we have this this drama that I think is interesting and and is compelling, even if it's not. Uh, tidily so. So Alex, if the if it wasn't little guy versus the uh, the Wall Street Giants, what was it? I think it was a combination of a lot of things. I think it actually was a lot of Wall Street Giants taking on other Wall Street Giants, and and unfortunately, when you're talking about amounts of money as big as we're, we're talking about here, when a company goes uh, like GameStop increases its market cap by tens of billions of dollars. Uh, the average American just isn't in a position to do that, even if they're all working together. Um, and so I think as we've seen more more details come out about this, we've seen that there actually were a lot of hedge funds uh, on 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 the GameStop side of things, playing GameStop stock, not playing GameStop shorts. And um, and so we kind of have these you know these these titans of uh, of of Wall Street battling each other, and a lot of them went home. Came into this very rich and went home a lot richer. And I think a lot of um, a lot of the the novices, the redditors, some of them made money, and I think a lot of them ended up probably getting hosed. So um, you know, it, it wasn't you know there were there were uh, there's financial money or sorry institutional money on both sides of this. So um, just so folks know, uh, GameStop is not the only stock that was involved in this hedge funds versus the the subreddit. Uh, but it was a symbolic stock and one of the biggest ones that went up and down. Uh, and and that one was at GameStop was at five trading at five dollars back in August. It got up to three hundred and twenty five dollars. And since Friday, and now we're Tuesday, just a couple of days later, obviously in the markets, it's lost seventy percent of its value and gone back down to ninety dollars. Now that's still much higher than it was in August. Uh, but obviously, um, if you Got in at 325. It didn't work out well for you. On the other hand, if you got in at five, you're you're feeling great. <laughs> so, so it's it's not 
black and white issue here. And I'm super curious to see if eventually people will uncover um, real evidence, significant evidence of hedge funds coming in on the GameStop side, right? Uh, and so we'll see, I, I, I haven't seen clear evidence of that yet, okay? But now one of the ways that we might find out, Alex, is something you wrote about, Robinhood, which is a trading app that stopped trading on, on GameStop and these other stocks, uh, has gotten sued a lot <laughs> because of that. So tell us about those lawsuits and then we'll talk about whether they have a chance of winning. Yeah, sure. So. Obviously, at the at the kind of pitch of this of of this frenzy at the at the highest point when there was people diving into this and it became you know major national international news and um, you know far beyond just the financial press, um, uh, Robinhood had basically put a freeze on 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 trading on for most people on these stocks. So you could you could only buy five shares or you could only buy one uh, one option or you could you couldn't buy any at all or they would close out your position for you without asking, and and so there were these various these acts that you know people didn't know were any part of the equation, and and certainly made the whole thing look much more malevolent, and 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 resulted in a ton of 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 enthusiasm for now, like a class action lawsuit and all this legal retribution. And I think Robinhood probably is in a lot of trouble because you know you as as, as even even in these situations, you can't sell people stocks for them. You can't lock their money up. It, it, it's a situation where you know, rightfully, people were really pissed, and I think a lot of people probably lost a lot of money because of that. And it shows you, importantly, the disparity between the the tools that that people are using here. With hedge funds are using these these trading platforms and these these the software that is is going to beat down something like Robinhood. Which you know is is not as sophisticated for one thing, and then secondly, can freeze your money or or make a transaction for you. It's hard to hard to beat the house when that's that's the situation. Yeah, I, I want people to understand. Back in the day, uh, in the stock market, people would go and yell and scream to buy the actual shares, right? And that's why you'd have a broker, uh, and then uh, then it eventually developed into. Things like E-Trade and TD Ameritrade, where you could buy it through these websites and eventually apps. And they would charge you a certain amount per trade, five, six bucks or so, right? And then Robinhood came out in around 2013, 2014 and said, we're not gonna charge you anything for the trades. So it's all commission free. And eventually they even made option buying options commission free. And a lot of these purchases on these stocks were options. That's a way of doing a bigger bet on the stock to, to oversimplify. So uh, when Robinhood uh, now has built up 6 million users and is one of the largest platforms for trading in the whole country, in the whole world. And so, but they do make money somehow and they make it on the on the side where they actually are buying the stocks through what is called a market maker. So Alex, can you explain that side of it? And what people thought was going might be going on, and then we'll get to whether it actually was or not. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, so the it's it's a system called payment for order flow, and it's you know we're deep in the in the weeds here of uh, of financial process, but what it is basically is that Robinhood will bring a transaction to a market maker, like you said, and usually that's a big Wall Street firm, um, and say. Uh, you know, basically, we're bringing you this trade, and you are going to uh, fill it for us. And Wall Street firms love this because 
uh, it's crucial information for them. I mean, this is how you know they make a living based on these trades. And so they get brought information about the market before it is put into place. And so they pay Robinhood uh, to get that information to enact that trade. And then it benefits them because they can act based on that information before it's realized. And so again, this is this is we're deep in 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 this, and it's confusing and and um, but in, in a sense. These Wall, these Wall Street firms, these market makers, were making a killing off of this uh, from the very beginning, and they were getting information that, that as to how the market would behave, and, and they were able to act with that information in their own best interest. And so this is a process that has been uh, criticized extensively. It was actually pioneered by Bernie Madoff, and there have been many moments where it was uh, thought to be uh, or thought likely to be illegalized. But of course, it is not, and um, and that's kind of another thing to kind of be a fuel to the fire of, uh, of 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 people kind of questioning just how deep the chicanery runs in this in this situation. Yeah, so I give you guys. So we don't have enough time to discuss all the different ways they can rob you, but I I give you one here. So there's one is the legitimate non illegal way of doing it. So what they do is when they're buying the stock, let's say it's worth hundred dollars, they charge you a hundred dollars and five cents. So that's how the market maker makes money and and then shares some of it with Robinhood. And the market maker in this case was Citadel and they were also shorting GameStop. So that's why everybody thought, oh my God, Robinhood makes 40% of their money from Citadel. And one part of Citadel at least is the one that's shorting the stock. And all of a sudden they can't, they don't have enough money according to enough deposits. Um, to be able to make these transactions. And that's why they're saying they're stopping the trade, which helps Citadel tremendously, right? And so now it gets more complicated than that because the Citadel is not the one blocking the trade. It's the clearinghouse that's blocking it based on the deposits. But basically Citadel and, and Robinhood make the money from char- charging you that extra five cents on every share that you're buying in that example, right? Now that's legal, it's questionable, but legal. Other brokerages charge only one cent as an example. So since they're not charging you per trade, they're charging you per share on Robinhood. And Robinhood actually makes more money, which means it's probably a worse deal for you, okay? Than if you just paid for the trade. Now, having said all that, the illegal part is if they front load a trade. And that's closer to what Alex was saying. Front loading a trade means not only am I selling it to you for 105 cents, but I already bought it at 100. I bought a Citadel. I'm not saying they did this. I'm saying if they did this, if they buy it first, knowing that a big order is coming in and then sell it right after the order, that's definitely market manipulation and definitely illegal. But we don't know that they did that. So Alex, my final question to you is, does anyone work at the SEC? Um, Has anyone ever uh, investigated the front loading, which seems like it's a layup, it's so easy. For those market makers to do that, I would be shocked if a huge percentage of them weren't front loading. But we never know because the government never seems to regulate the big hedge funds. So has a lot of that happened and I'm missing it? It's funny because actually in the case of Citadel, Citadel was fined by FINRA, which is a regulatory body for front running trades in payment for order flow situation. So it wasn't it wasn't recently. But it wasn't. It was, you know, it was. I think just a year or two back that they were they were fined by Finra for this, which is a not an agency that's known to be particularly effective, uh, much like the SEC, which also fined Robinhood uh, 
for its its involvement in the situation. So we're talking about two regulatory bodies that basically do nothing, um, but they have both taken action against both Robinhood and Citadel, which gives you a sense. And that was before there was all this attention paid to, to the situation. Gives you the sense that there's probably you know very very wide ranging malfeasance going on here. We don't know the extent of it because the agencies have been so hollowed out. But we do know that it has happened in the past, uh, and uh, it's you know we we. we Hard to be shocked if we were to were to hear it, it was happening now. Yeah, so let me end on this conclusion. Uh, the lawsuits that Alex wrote about on the American Prospect, you should read about it because those lawsuits could be super helpful. Um, they're either going to find out that Robin Hood didn't do anything wrong, in which case that's good, then we'll know, and and Robin Hood will have its name cleared, right? Or they'll find out, yeah, they're they're working with Citadel, and and if Citadel is front running the trades. Um, People should go to jail, not hey, oh, you lost a little bit of money, or I, oh, I find you two hundred million. That sounds like so much. You made two billion on one trade. You know, right? It's a joke, right? So um, no, bankrupt them and put them in prison next to Bernie Madoff, if they did it, and maybe we'll find out in the lawsuits if they did do it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. All right, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, back on the conversation. Joining us now is Ryan Grimm. He's the Washington Bureau Chief of The Intercept, and he's also a TYT contributor. Ryan, good to have you back. And a lot of things have happened since we last talked. We're gonna talk about Medicare for All. I was led to believe that you were one of the good guys from Force to Vote because you were proving all of us wrong. But I dip back in and I find out that it turns out you're a sociopathic liar and and are doing access journalism. Um, if I didn't, if somebody said to me, name one person who is not doing access journalism, I would name you. Uh, but apparently, I missed the boat, and and you're now also a show. So, yeah. Yeah. what happened? Why did they turn on you? Uh, <laughs> that's that's well. So the force to vote. Uh, there's a there's a segment of the force to vote uh, people who believe. That you know, if if you don't think that forcing a floor vote is is the right thing to do at this moment, then you either don't understand the 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 cleverness or the wisdom behind it, or or there must be some other explanation, either either psychological or financial. You know, you, you you're shilling for for somebody. Like they they have a very hard time accepting the possibility that somebody just disagrees. With the idea that's being put out there, and so I think that at least since I've been covering you know Congress for 15 years or whatever amount of time I've been wasting on that, uh, people don't want to say that I don't understand congressional process. So the only other option then is I must I must be corrupt and I must be trying to protect access to the squad. The, the hilarious thing about, about that charge is like you know as as you said, uh, you know my. Kind of career has been in the opposite direction, and in fact, the the way that I first became introduced to AOC was covering her campaign against the speaker to be. So it would be a bizarre move for somebody who's organizing their career around access journalism to heavily cover an obscure insurgent challenger to the Democrat who is in line 
to be Speaker of the House in just six months. You know, if if Joe Crowley had won in 2018, there's every reason to believe that he is the Speaker of the House right now. And we and at the Intercept, we assumed that he was going to beat her. You know, we we thought the race was worth covering. We thought it was a, a, a good opportunity to kind of introduce the country to who Joe Crowley was. Um, and so, you know, we went all in on that race. But when we went all in on that race, you know, we were obviously <laughs> torching ourselves with the with the incoming speaker. So the irony of uh, of uh, being accused of being an access journalist is 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 certainly not not lost to me, especially since the guy making the accusation is, uh, you know, was, was initially infuriated first at Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders wouldn't come on his show. So he endorses Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, and then infuriated at, at AOC for for not coming on on his show, and he's been very public uh, about that. And and finally, for people who don't you know understand political or congressional journalism, I don't actually uh, report much uh, on the on the squad. I don't I don't rely on the squad uh, for sourcing. Like I I report on centers of power, uh, congressional leadership, the the White House consultant class, the people in in Washington who have actual power. Um, And so, you know, the the squad wouldn't actually be no offense to them wouldn't aren't terribly useful um, to that reporting because they're not they're not in the most important meetings. Uh, Yeah, it, it would be a better world if they are, but they're not. Yeah. So look, and I know the intercept uh, covers uh, a lot of smaller candidates who don't win, like Alex Morse. So, well, there goes your access. Right, he right. He's the chair. <laughs> right, he's the chair. This is this is uh, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Um, that you know that, that Morse that was we running. Did, against. That was Morse was running against that that we did all of this coverage about you know exposing the smear campaign against him. If we were concerned about access to powerful people, there's there are few people more powerful in Washington than than the Ways and Means Chairman, and you know there was very little chance that Alex Morse was going to win. So it wasn't like it was some kind of bank shot attempt at some new amount of access. The key point in that race, which we made over and over, was that Richie Neal is a huge obstacle to to Medicare for all. Uh, he was forced last year uh, under pressure to have uh, have a Medicare for all hearing, and he asked his committee members not to use the words Medicare for all. Uh, he is he is very much in the tank for not just the insurance industry, but these private equity funded uh, doctor networks. And you know, re- removing him as a political obstacle to the Medicare for all is is extremely is necessary to getting Medicare for all. Uh, over over the finish line, and so that's that's really what that campaign uh, was was about on a on a national level. Yeah. So look, I can go on and on about this, uh, and I'm glad that you said that you guys didn't think AOC was going to win. That leaves TYT is the only uh, uh, and crazy people who thought AOC could win. Uh, and we but to I be fair, we also thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. we also thought. Yeah, we also thought Alex could win, and he didn't. So right. <laughs> you win yeah. some, you lose some. Right. And uh, but your point about access journalism is hilarious, and I had honestly I had not thought about it that way. That Jimmy's constantly complaining that people won't come on his show, and then he uh, says that he's now against them because they won't come <laughs> on his show. That's the definition of access journalism. <laughs> that's what, that's that's what it definition. is. Okay. Anyway, I, I blame uh, you for this, Jen, because you know, you really. Um, 
uh, taught a lot of people about what access journalism is, and you and you did a service in in educating people. But I don't think Jimmy quite got it. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> and so I think I I actually think he got the term from you, and he's just kind of re- repeating it um, without quite understanding that it's what he practices. But anyway. Jimmy doing something without quite understanding it. Hmm, that's a news event. Um, okay, anyways, uh, now let's go to the substance as quickly as we can. So um, what are progressives planning for Medicare for all uh, in this term? So uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and Pramila Jayapal are both working on their companion bills in the House and Senate. What you do every every term, you know, she first, in, Jayapal first introduced it in the House in 2019. You. You you talk to every uh, office, you know, before you introduce it, to allow them to believe uh, that they had some opportunity to shape it, to to try to get them to co-sponsor it, because you want to have the highest number of uh, co-sponsors that that you can, and you want to show growth in co-sponsors. You know, showing a shrinkage is is death for legislation because it it tells everybody else, well, this isn't going anywhere, so I can just move off of this and. The perception around the power and the viability of Medicare for all is extraordinarily important because just a few years ago, it was considered in Washington something that wasn't serious. Uh, you know, before Bernie Sanders ran for president, he was effectively the only one in the Senate who was you know regularly introducing a a Medicare for all bill. You had uh, John Conyers, who had HR six seventy six, but it was a it was a really small bill. You know, it, it wasn't. A, it wasn't an actual piece of legislation that you could uh, that you could kind of implement, which Jayapal's bill is and Sanders' new bill is. So they had 118 sponsors in in 2019. They need more than that this time to show to show growth, or they need close to it, and they need to continue to add over the next over the next weeks and months. Then they're going to uh, push for hearings in in every committee, uh, legislation that uh, you know that changes. A fifth or a sixth of the economy isn't going into law, you know, without going through the the relevant committees. The other reason that committees are so important is that that's how you do the financing side of the legislation. In in Bernie's bill, he has kind of a menu of options of how you would uh, pay for Medicare for all. But what you have to do is you 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 have to debate, like, okay, what are what are the ways that that we're going to finance this? And you don't have to finance all of it. Some of it you can do. With uh, debt, with with deficit spending, uh, but at at some point you you have to have some a revenue stream. Every, every single payer bill around the world has some has some revenue stream. So who who you know what what tax money is going to fu- is going to fund this project in perpetuity? Yeah. And that is something that gets hashed out in committee. And what a lot of the uh, advocates were concerned about is that if you put it on the floor without that financing side. That even the people who have sponsored it, who have co-sponsored it, will say, "Well, I don't really know how you're going to pay for this." And so when it gets kicked back to the committees, uh, and it, or it goes over to the Senate, they might they might make it they might you know uh, do a payroll tax that hits the hits the working class and hits the middle class, and I'm not for that. And you know, then if they weren't strong supporters of Medicare for all already, then maybe they drop off. And when you think you have 118 co-sponsors, you you end up only getting 60, 70 votes on the floor, and then you. Are relegated back to a thing that isn't serious. Okay, so Ryan, uh, they're introducing it, uh, and they're going to committee, and they're hashing out the exact details of it. So that's good progress. But at the end of that, do they actually have a floor vote, or don't they in this term, meaning these next two years? They 
Jayapal and the others don't have any plan uh, for a floor vote in the next two years because they think that they would get hammered um, if if they took it to the floor. Yeah, that's it's, fine. But Ryan, so in the sh- that's they're making a mistake in my opinion. Uh, so real quick, um, if the how are they ever going to find out who's going to vote against it and prime and let us primary them, us meaning the progressive movement, if we don't have a vote? The the non the non co sponsors are the list, and then they're they're trying to put they're trying to put out a list of people who they don't think they can ever get to co sponsor. So the ones that are on the fence, you you target those. Um, National Nurses United is going to might already have it on their site. The ones who they don't think they can get. Then uh, you have to start organizing primary challenges to them uh, for for next time around. I, I actually think that you could make an argument that a that a that a floor vote could could be helpful, something to organize around. But if they're convinced from their conversations with House Democrats that they would actually lose something like half of their sponsors, uh, then that would be a bloodbath that would that would set it back, which isn't any it isn't something that anybody wants to hear. You don't want to hear that on on this this legislation that. Is so popular nationwide. Support in Washington is is so tepid. Yeah, no, I think they're making a terrible mistake. So obviously, um, you know, I, I didn't agree with force the vote at that particular vote because I didn't think that it was strategic or made any sense and had no preparation whatsoever. Right? It was just going in uh, without having a clue as to how the process works. Now, having said that, I I think we should force the vote. Uh, and and the reason for that, and I, is that so like both sides hate me, right? The establishment <laughs> says no, you should never force a vote. In fact, even the progressives say that you shouldn't force a vote in the next two years. So they're they're pissed at me. Force a vote, people say, yeah, but you didn't do it on Tuesday, and we didn't do it on Tuesday at 4:01 a.m. and you're late, so we hate you and you're a shill. So I'm in no man's land here. But but Ryan, if you don't. The the, the value of eventually when you've gone through enough uh, process. To be ready, right? You know how to pay for it. It's not going to fall apart at the seams. It's not a house of cards, etc. If you don't actually get a floor vote, you're never going to get enough attention on it to move the national conversation. In doing it Jayapal's way is going to take decades. I think the best argument you could make for pushing it to the floor in the next two years would be that perhaps progressives don't understand yet the the power that they do have. They yes, because these 118 co-sponsors or what you know, whatever they end up with on this piece of legislation, you know that that means something when they when they put their name down. So if they put their name down it down there, and then they say, well, I had this problem, that problem with the financing, and so I'm voting no on the floor. They they have now put a target on their back. And several years ago, it didn't matter if somebody had a target on their back because the left had no ability to really win primaries. You know, it was only in 2018 when people started waking up in Congress saying, "Oh wait, the, you mean my behavior could actually have consequences in a in a primary?" So I think they probably should use that that newfound fear that exists within the Democratic Caucus and say, "Look, you sponsored this. Uh, it's it's not it's not going to pass. Um, it's not you know it's not going to get through the Senate this time anyway. But if you vote against this, you're putting yourself on a list." Uh, that it, that is going to have the the rage of people in your district coming after you. So I think that would be the argument for why um, m- moving it toward a vote within the next two years, and you know, early enough that you can primary, you know, December, January. So it's early enough that you can primary people 
um, who who uh, are co-sponsors, but then drop off. Yeah. Uh, all right. We'll end on this. Look, Jaya Paul's wrong. Uh, she's not a bad person. She's a wonderful person. She's a, she's a smart person. Uh, by the way, she won't come on the Young Turks anymore because I say she's wrong. Uh, so. <laughs> If I'm doing access journalism, I'm really doing it wrong. You're doing uh, <laughs> a bad job. Right. Yeah. Um, so because what the mistake that she, I think she and other so-called progressive leadership is making is that they're uh, not unleashing the number one tool that they have in their arsenal, which is the people. We all want Medicare for all. 80% of the Democratic Party uh, voters want Medicare for all, and they're leaving them on the bench. It is very bad politics. If you're just trying to do this uh, through insider baseball, I got news for you. The insiders hate it. They're never going to pass it. They never, never even uh, want to vote on it. You're never, ever, ever going to get a vote unless you make them do a vote. And and right now, the Democrats have the majority in the Demo in the House, the Senate, and and the presidency. If they keep going the way that they are, that won't last. So. It, and then you then you can't even force a vote because the Republicans will have could have the House, right? So no, no way, no way. While the think Democrats are the control of the House, they must have a vote. They must. Right. And the the other reason um, that that this gets complicated is that you have so many uh, right leaning Democrats on the powerful committees, and so getting it voted out of uh, the committee. Um, is is extraordinarily difficult. You could good, good, good. That's perfect. You know why? So I don't want that. I want it to pass, right? But I need to have the vote way before the elections, so we can know who to primary. Now they are making a theoretical primary list, but that list is number one too large, right? Number two, I don't think they're actually going to do it. To be honest with you, I I know the people who run who run the primaries. I know them well, right? And it's they have a narrow amount of bandwidth, right? And and so you know who are the perfect people to primary, people who sit on those committees yeah. who don't let you pass it out of committees. So you can't do that unless you say I want the vote and I want it right now when you're I, ready. I and think it will be a moment yeah. you're ready. If they don't go, then it's a it's a massive political blunder. If if I were running the strategy, I'd say force a vote in the Ways and Means Committee, force a vote in Energy and Commerce. Hundred um, percent. That's right. Like, and then find out who on these powerful panels, because what you're going to find are, are corporate friendly Democrats, a lot of them in blue districts, uh, and those are ripe ripe targets. And if if somebody can if somebody votes against Medicare for all in committee and loses because of that, that's a sea change in Congress. Yes, and we can make that happen. In fact, the people watching this can make that happen. But we need a vote at some point. And so if it was just a delay, so we never get a vote, then you know, um, it will not stand. There, there will be an actual force to vote that comes from the people, uh, and it'll be at a smart, strategic time, and they will not be able to withstand it. Uh, then, then everybody will be united, uh, and I, I don't think that so-called progressive leadership in Congress understands that the weight of the people, right? They, they just keep thinking, how am I strategizing with Pelosi and Hakeem Jeffries and Richie Neal? No, 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 no. You've got to at some point unleash us. If you don't, then there's gonna be real pressure on you and that's gonna be legitimate. So we'll see how that develops. All right, Ryan Grimm from The Intercept, great reporting as always. Thank you for joining us.
Thank you, Jay. All right.